Uh, if you don't know what Planning Roots is, um, we had to actually be out of this building at the end of December 2016. And so we, for the last six years, have been looking for a place to move to. And, and we've talked to a bunch of places, looked at a bunch of places. There's either not enough parking, it's too small, or they don't want to rent to a church because we're not retail and a whole bunch of issues in that. So uh, this year we ended up buying this dirt field that's out here. And so we've got this whole plan in the next couple of years to actually end up building as a permanent facility because all this is actually sold. So that's the kind of planting roots is. It's kind of a journey we're going on towards that. And so when I say stupid things like we release flies to make you miserable, so it's like, oh, I can't wait for a building with air conditioning and no flies. That's right, whatever. So... Uh, Go, going, going towards this journey, if you're in a gospel community here, you, uh, there's different videos that are sent out, uh, devotional things that go out to kind of go along with all that we're talking about. And if you're not in one, I don't want you to miss some of that. So I want to show you one of the videos that went out uh, this week to all the gospel communities, and I'd like you guys to see it. Uh, this is Laura. Uh, Donald and Laura are my gospel community leaders, and so this is Laura and, and her thing about elements. So here you go. Hi, I'm Laura. My doll and I. <laughs> Is it rolling right now? <laughs> Hi, I'm Laura. My husband Donald and I have been coming to Element since it was probably about two months old. About a month after we got engaged, I decided to start looking for a church. Um, our daughter Faith was just over a year old at the time, and I wanted her to grow up in a church family. And growing up Catholic, I knew that that wasn't the route I wanted to go. At the time, Donald lived in Orchid, and I lived in Santa Maria, and I drove by Element one night, and they were having a night service at 6.30, and I chose to walk in the doors. I had Faith with me on my hip, and I stood off to the side for a little bit, and this mom, to this day, I don't know who she was, but she approached me and said, hey, there's a mother's room in the back if you want to sit and listen. And so I sat in the back and listened to Aaron preach, and after the service, I felt a calling to be at Element. I was so excited to have found a church to call my home that I approached Donald about it, and he was really against going to church for his own personal reasons, but I dragged him to the following week at Element, and he fell in love as well. After Donald and I attended Element together for the first time, we made a decision to stop having premarital sex. We had been engaged by then for a couple months, and we wanted to go through premarital counseling with Aaron, and we decided that we wanted him to marry us. And with that, we really started to lean on Jesus and decided that we weren't going to have premarital sex, and we were going to live for Jesus together and raise our daughter Faith with um, Jesus is our focal point. I think it was a gradual thing. It wasn't like one like big like I'm all in. It was it was really gradual. Like going going to Element continuously. I think every week it was I was surrendering my life to Jesus. It wasn't like one day I went and like today's the day I'm surrendering my life to Jesus. It was every week and even now every every time I go to Element, it's like a new part of me is reached from head to toe. So I think that. It's been over the past few years of me coming to Element, and I'm still growing. I still have, you know, a lot up to learn, and Jesus still touches me 
every week and every day that I attend Element and you know just by the people who come to Element and the gospel community that I have was introduced to and we left and met new people like it's just been a gradual change over over the past few years. There's been talk about um, growth for probably the past what year now if not longer and looking for buildings and looking what buildings we can demolish and redo and make our home and so I, I knew that a form of planting roots was coming I didn't know to what extent or to where but it's always been in the back of my mind and we've been praying about a home for element and so when I heard about planting roots I wasn't surprised but I was excited I was excited for the um, growth that element is going to encounter. I was excited for the huge building, but beautiful building. It's not ginormous by any means, but I think it's perfect for what element needs right now. And I'm excited that, you know, after that building, it's not, are we gonna grow out of this building? It's where else can we go from there? And what other churches can we plant in the area? So hopefully with the growth of element and hopefully having um, more services, people like me can encounter Element as well with being able to walk into services and drop in and have somebody just walk up and say hi, just like whoever it was came and said hi to me, then I got out of Element. We still don't know who it was. Who? We don't know. It's like, maybe it's like an angel. It's like, hello. Mother's room. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever it was, you know, it's cool because, you know, Donald and Laura stayed and, they, and they've been a real blessing to us. So uh, we just want you to know if you are new and you hear us say element a lot, it really is about Jesus. Everything we do is about Jesus. It's, it's not about us. It's not about a building, but we need a home to be in. And so that's why we're doing this journey. If you don't have a journey guide, we'd recommend you guys grab one right out here. Uh, it's got uh, daily devotionals in it for all the stuff that we're going through. It, it gives you like where we've been, where we're going, what our vision is. And also on October 5th, which is the first Sunday in October, we're actually going to do one church service. Okay, one church, and you're like, this is crowded as this. I know. One church service, uh, it's going to be at 10 a.m., okay, so you guys got to get up a little bit earlier, and it's going to, oh my goodness, right? Dear God, what are you going to do? So, whoops. So, uh, <laughs> it's going to be out here in the field, all right? We're going we're gonna to have a tent, so don't worry, it's going to be in the shade. It'll probably be even cooler than it is in here because the wind will blow through. be like, oh, we should just do it every week out here. Uh, we got to get a permit to put a tent up for a couple hours on a Sunday. It's crazy. Anyway, so uh, October 5th, 10 a.m., one service. I think you'll be surprised at, at how big Element actually is right now because there's people in first service that you guys never see. It's like, I'd never get up that early. It's like 10 a.m., and it's like, I know, oh, my goodness, right? So we, we want you guys to, to see everybody, and let's just do one big church service together. So October 5th, 10 a.m., make your plans to be here. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. be really cool. And all that. Uh, so, welcome to Element. Uh, my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There's also Bibles underneath a lot of the seats in here, so you can grab one if you don't have one. Uh, we don't have sermon notes for the Planting Roots. Five weeks we're doing this because all those are in the journey guide. And so, we'd recommend that you guys grab one because all those notes are going to be in there. Uh, we do, though, if you have a version, you download an app called version on your smartphone, the only thing that's going to be in that is going to 
be the, the verses that we go through. Uh, the rest of the stuff, all the questions are all in the journey guide. So we recommend you guys grab one of those. And there's a couple around the room right now if you guys don't have one. But this is what we're going to be going through. Okay, so why don't you guys stand with me for reading of God's word. We'll get started. This is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. And Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as a people would be really honest about where our treasure lies and where our hearts actually sit. And that through the course of this journey that we walk through, our hearts would be brought more and more in line with you. And that whatever sits on the throne in our life would be set aside so that you could live in your rightful place in the midst of our hearts. And we begin to live that out in a way that everyone knows that our treasure is you. The kingdom of God, living lives that bring you great glory and great honor, that we would be your people. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we don't know how to actually... If you go on the website, it's going to look a little weird because it's either going to be Sermon on the Mount week 31 or Planting Roots week 2. I guess you're going to have to look at it to find out what it's going to look like because we don't know. Now, a lot of people think that the next following four weeks are going to hit is about treasure. And people think this is going to be the most you know bummer four weeks I've ever spent at Element. I think it's going to be the best. I think it's going to be the best five weeks starting last week through the next four weeks you've ever spent here. I think it's going to be amazing because what is treasure in America? Money. That's what treasure is. And you're thinking, I better hold on to my wallet. Maybe today. You know, I, I don't know. 10% of the scriptures, 25% of Jesus' own words deal with money in some way or another. And so sometimes if you think we talk too much about it, you would really hate how Jesus taught for your information, by the way. So today what I'm going to do is do something just a tiny bit different for you. And I'm going to give you a message for rich people. You're like, why did I even come today? Right? I don't need to come to that. What's, what's up with that? I mean, going out for date night, that's like McDonald's. And my wife and I go Dutch. So, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe. Open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, page 644 if you have an element Bible. And in 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to his young protege. His name is Timothy. He's talking to him about the church, and this letter affects most of the church altogether, the whole congregation. And so in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19, Paul gets to this, and it's really interesting. He says, As for the rich in this present age, and as soon as you read that, some people just automatically check out. Wow, that's not me. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, the rich people, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they, the rich... When we take hold of that which is truly life. Now, if you've been at Element for any length of time, you should read this and start to think, okay, so who are they? Who are these rich people? Who does it apply to? Who in our day really needs to pay attention to this? Which comes to the question of how do you decide whether you are rich or not? Because everybody wants to be rich. We all want, want to be rich. How do most people decide if they're rich or not? They look around at everybody else. They look at their income and what, well, I don't have a new car and they got a new car, so they must be more rich than I am. We, we're always comparing the people around us. And we always ask this question, do I feel rich? But the feeling rich is actually really elusive. 
Uh, we all have a certain amount of money, and yet we all feel like if I had that amount of money, well, then I'd be okay. My life would take care of everything. would all come together. And someday maybe you do make that amount of money you were looking for, and then you still don't feel rich. Like when my wife and I first got married, 1992... We got married, and I thought, man, if her and I together combined could make $30,000 a year, man, we would have made it, right? And so combined, you know, at one point we were making $30,000 a year. And you know what I found out? We were poor. That's what I found out. Because that, that is not a lot of money. It's like, oh, oh my goodness. Now, Fidelity did a survey a few years ago of a 1,000 millionaires. And they asked a 1,000 millionaires, do you feel rich? And when I'm a kid growing up, I mean, a million dollars, that's like Thurston Howell on Gilligan's Island. Or like the, the Monopoly guy, right? With the little, oh, past boardwalk, you know, collect $200. $200, what? That's so much. Why isn't this real money? Oh, my goodness. Right? It's like that, that guy's, he, he's gotta be the rich guy. We have TV shows like, who wants to be a millionaire? Every time I saw him, I'm like, me! Are you giving it? Me! I, I wanna be a millionaire. I'll do that. And so people in this survey had an average net worth of 3.5 million dollars. 40% of them said, I don't feel rich. And those people on average said, well, if you had $7.5 million, well, then you'd be rich. Can you imagine a kid growing up and you hearing these words? Well, $7 million, you're not rich. But $7.5, well, there you go. I I wish I would have known about the .5 that would have helped me all along. Now, you want to guess who thinks having $7.5 million doesn't make you feel rich? People with $7.5 million. I say, well, I don't feel rich because there's something that goes on underneath that in our lives. This whole thing, I don't feel rich. Because being rich has this connotation that you're content, you're successful, you've made it, you have everything that you really need. And because we don't feel content, we don't feel successful, we don't feel secure, we don't feel like we have enough, therefore we must not be the rich. And all we're doing is defining our identities by our own standards. And this is why Jesus relates the whole idea of treasure in the Sermon on the Mount the way that he does. It starts after God has blessed you. The poor in spirit, you are blessed. Those who mourn, you are blessed. He lays out all of these blessings. And then he gets into chapter 6 and he talks about prayer. Your Father in heaven goes to this entire thing about prayer. He'll take care of you. Trust who he is. And then he gets to treasure in Matthew six nineteen to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? You know, moth and rust will destroy those things. Thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven when neither moth nor rust destroys where thieves do not break in and steal. For your treasure is there, your heart will be also. I mean, this is a critical part to who we are as people. We have this identity. And the way we define our identity is we look around at other people and compare ourselves to them. You can compare up to people who are doing better than you. You can compare compare down to people who are doing worse than you. Like if you want to see how you're doing morally, who do you compare yourself to? Somebody who's doing worse. It's like, well, you know, at least I didn't snort all my money up my nose from cocaine. I spent it on video games. I'm better than that guy. Right? And so we're comparing. You know, you look, when you drive, who do you compare yourself to? People doing worse. Like, those people don't know how to use the roundabout. I do. I'm such a better driver. That's what we compare to. When it comes to money, though, we're always comparing up. 
Oh, I don't have what they do. I don't have the house that they do. I don't have this that they do. Oh, if I only... And we're always comparing up. And when we compare up, it makes us think that we don't have enough. And what that does is it allows us to serve what we really want in our lives. It gives us the bias that we all want to be in denial about money. It serves us the way we want so we can benefit from some things. And we can say, well, I'm not rich, so therefore I don't need to be very generous because I don't have a whole lot. If you say, well, I'm not rich, it's, you know, I, you can always want more and say, oh no, I need that. It's a necessity. I've got to have that, you know, because I don't have a lot. As long as you can say that you think you're not rich, it's okay for you to be judgmental about the people you do think are rich and how they should give more money and how they're not being generous enough. And if you go and read the scriptures honestly, you've got to start with financial reality. You've got to break that denial, denial bubble of who Paul talks about when he says, as for the rich in this present, present age. Now, in your journey guides, I put this statistic, and if you didn't read it, here's a statistic for you. One billion people in our world today live on less than one U.S. dollar a day. One billion. Okay? Another billion live on two U.S. dollars a day or less. And if they looked at you, what do you think they'd say about you? Would they say you're the rich? Probably. Probably. If you make $24,000 a year, you are over the 90th percentile of wealth in the world. Top 10%. David Letterman would be proud. All of you, if you make over $80,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of wealth in the world. Top 1%. And so if we're going to come out of our denial bubble as a general rule, you look at Bible times. How do people normally live in Bible times? Day to day to day. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 11, give us this day our daily bread. Why daily? Because each day was a struggle from the next to the next to the next. And this has been the majority of a lot of the human race throughout the centuries. And so I think to be rich biblically is has to have significantly more than you need to go day to day to day. How many of you go home and you open your fridge and like, oh, there's nothing to eat or nothing I want to eat. And yet there's actually stuff in there. It's like, no, you just don't want the stuff that's in there. I know my wife does the Tally Farms fresh box and so she gets all the vegetables. And I'm like, there is nothing in this fridge I want to eat. It is all vegetables. She got beets this week. I'm like, what are you going to do with those? Throw them away. Beets? Who eats beets? Apparently she eats beets, so whatever. You learn something new even after 22 years of marriage, so whatever. So so this is the idea. We have more than we need, David, and, and that means scripturally, you're rich. Congratulations. You made it. You should all look happier, by the way, okay? Because <laughs> you can write the blog, you can give the seminar, you can write the book, How I Got Rich. And you write, Aaron told me so. There you go. That, 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 that's how you know. And, and if we have these resources, we need to look around at how to help those around us. And again, that doesn't mean like a handout. It means helping out in positive and proper ways. It doesn't mean if someone is unrighteous and it has made them poor that you continue to give them money. You do not encourage people in their laziness or idleness or in their unrighteousness. But in the other side, we should all be living righteous and generous lives. And so if you're here today or listening to the podcast or the video or whatever it is, Paul's words are for all of us. As for the rich in this present age, because that's us. And so we've got to pay attention. How do we handle this richness? And Paul says, charge them not to be haughty. Now, the word haughty is the word arrogant. Arrogant. Because apparently, you know, in the ancient world, in the early church, there were people, and they had money, and they get very proud of that money. They would dress a certain way and drive certain cars and expect to be catered to in certain circumstances. I mean, I'm so glad that doesn't happen today. Right? I'll, I'll tell you this. Now, most of the time during the week, uh, I dress like I'm going to work in the yard. 
it's if, if you have watched like any of the video blogs that go along with the devotionals for planting roots, that's how I normally look. It's like I got up at you know 6:30 in the morning, and someone punched me in the face, and I went and did a video blog. That that's how I normally look. Now last year, Marianne and I went and bought her a car. And when we went to the, the place, I'm like walking around and all the salesmen are like just ignoring me. Like, who's that dude, right? Like, he's going to ask for a handout not to buy a car. And, and it was crazy because people judge based on how you look. Open your Bibles to James chapter 2. That's page 654 in the Element Bible, by the way. I'm trying to do that more for you just in case you guys have one of those. Uh, and what you see is that Jesus is starting to create a different type of community with his people. Where these kind of dynamics where you judge people by how they are dressed and look doesn't happen anymore. In James 2, verses 2 to 4, this is what James says. He says, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, so you can dress him up wherever you want. So what element? That would be like if he comes in wearing a really cool t-shirt and some blue jeans. Because that's element. And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. And you can dress them down wherever you want. That could be someone comes in in a suit and a tie and it's like, what's up with that dude not wearing jeans and t-shirt? Oh my goodness, what the crazy people, you know? And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, if you give the one who you think has more clout, more of your time and energy, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Anybody here ever find yourself reacting to somebody around you better because of how they dressed or how they spoke or what they looked like compared to maybe somebody else? And don't answer that because I think we all do that in some place. It all goes to treasure in our hearts. It's not just favoritism of rich people. I know a couple of people who shop exclusively at thrift stores and nowhere else. And they look down on people who shop in normal stores. It still goes back to where treasure is. You know, I hear about thinking, you know, I'm going to wear your grandpa's style. It was 99 cents. Right? Thrift store, thrift shop, whatever. I have a couple of friends who have some very big houses. And the first time I ever went to one of their big houses, I was like, wow, they must be way more interesting than I thought. Oh, you said that out loud. Yeah, I did. Okay. Why do I do that? Because my heart's evil. Because my heart is evil. And we judge on appearances and what we see. And these are the things that go through our minds all the time. Now, according to the scriptures, everybody actually does have a price tag on them. It says, made in the image of God. It says, worth the life of Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the dead for their sins. We all have that. We have that price to have affixed to us. And this is why we start this stewardship journey, which is in a spiritual place, of understanding God as our Father. But we live in a world where almost nobody sees that tag on every single person around them. God looks at our hearts. We must understand that in the midst of all of the treasure and all the things we talk about. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What if we actually live that way? What if we saw our treasure and the world around us and the people around us as treasures and we saw the world the way that God did? Dallas Willard wrote these words. He says, Only if we believe with our whole being in the equality of rich and poor before God can we walk in their midst as Jesus did, unaffected in our personal relations by the distinction. And that is just one of the ways in which Jesus changed the world. Jesus walked through life, and whoever he saw, whether they were attractive in the eyes of the world or not, whether they were educated or not, had money or not, had credentials or not, Jesus loved them. And I think he saw the wonder that he created them to be. 
And I wonder, man, what if we had a heart like that? What if our hearts were like that? And I think this is why Paul says, Timothy, tell rich people, you and me, not to put their hope in wealth, which is always uncertain. Tell rich people to put their hope in Jesus because money doesn't save you. And money didn't die on a cross for you. And money doesn't love you. And the financial reality of it all is that it's not even our money. It is God's money. Paul says, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It is God's in the first place. And we tend to get all weird about money because we think it's our money. Tell the rich people, don't get arrogant. Don't be haughty. Don't put your hope in money. Put your hope in Jesus, who richly provides with everything. And he adds that little tag on the end, with everything to enjoy. Why does God provide? Joy. Joy. It brings God joy to give. God himself is a giver. And when we learn how to give, we are people who actually begin to live in joy as well. Christian Smith is a sociologist at Notre Dame, and he wrote what people call the definitive work on Christian giving. The book is called Passing the Plate. It's in our uh, Sermon on the Mount book reading list. If you go to our website, you can look all those books up. And one of the things he found that most Christians in regard to giving, they experience what's called chronic guilt. This is, this is what he says about giving. He says, We were struck by what seemed to many American Christians as a kind of comfortable guilt. They were aware they're not giving as God would want them to. Initially, they can say the right stuff. Under the surface, they're guilty, but it's a comfortable guilt. They keep that awareness at a low enough level of discomfort so they don't actually have to increase their giving. Low-level chronic guilt. That is not a good strategy on how to deal with treasure in our lives. Uh, Ray Stedman once told a story about a man who had a guilty conscience because he cheated on his taxes. And so he wrote a letter to the IRS, and this is what it said. I have not been, uh, I have not been able to sleep because the last year when I filled out my tax return, I misrepresented my income. Enclosed is $500. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. Guilt is not a long-term good motivator for being generous. I think at times it could be important. Remorse and generosity, I think, can uh, remorse and, and guilt can move to the place where a place of generosity, but guilt alone isn't going to do it. What has to take place, it has to be personal, is between you and Jesus. Between you and him, and you spend, that's why the Planting Roots Journey Guide takes you through five weeks of devotionals to figure out where you need to be. It's internal. A church can't lay that burden on top of your head because it is, again, between you and Jesus. But it's this idea of coming to a place of a, a vision of the generous life that Jesus calls us to. This whole idea of the awareness of the provision that God our Father has first given to us. That we have eternity laid out before us that every day we get to live in the reality of the kingdom of God right here and right now. When we understand that's the only way generosity is going to happen. So Paul says, tell the rich they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What we are invited to is a redeemed life. All the mistakes, all the things we've gone to can all be redeemed and brought back into the light of Jesus and be used for good in the kingdom of God. And that includes our financial life. Because living in the kingdom of God includes our finances. And you think, why is money and possession so important spiritually? I'll try to explain this to you. It's kind of a long explanation, but just go with me in this. If, if I were to ask you, give me a definition for money. Most people struggle with that. And they're like, ah. like, if you ask economists, they say it's a neutral medium of exchange. Uh, it is not a neutral medium of exchange. It always buys for God's place in our hearts. So it's not just that. There's something that, deep, that goes deeper on with money. 
So in Genesis, God creates everything. On a primary level, that means everything belongs to God. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Everything in it, it's, it's all his. It's his possession. So what he does is he creates human beings in the midst of this. And he says, now I'm going to give this to you. You exercise dominion over the earth. That means he gives us responsibility and stewardship. That's what those words can really be translated as. And so well, what, what does that mean? It means that the sphere under our influence, where what we say goes with that. It's where our will rules. But we're supposed to steward that under the reign and the rule of God. And God has a will. He created people in his image. He gave us things to steward that he placed underneath us. So we are able to make some decisions about these things. And that's going to start with your body, right? So you're two years old. You're going to come out of the, out of the chute right there. And two years old, one of your first words is, mine. That's a kingdom word right there. It's, I have a spirit. That is mine. Ah, you know, mine. What's a two-year-old's other favorite word? No. That's a kingdom word. Mine and no. Kingdom. And unfortunately, most people still live their lives like they're a two-year-old. They think mine and no. No, God, it's all mine. No. And we live our lives like this. And it's like an evil little despot of a two-year-old that wants to rule their world. Midget demons. Crazy stuff. God takes mankind, he places them in his creation, he says, now you have dominion. And then God goes on and says, I'm going to give you every seed-bearing plant, every fruit-bearing tree. He gives Adam a naked woman. God's amazing. He's amazing. And he takes these people and he says, okay, now have stewardship and responsibility over all these things I just gave you. And so if we possess something, so we say however it's going to be used. So today that would be like your body and your food and your money and your stuff and your car and your clothes. Possession is an extension of that kingdom. It all grows out from starting with your body to everything else. But we were made to rule and to reign and to influence the world for the glory of God under the creativity of our creator. This is why possessions and money are so important to our identity, but also our destiny forever. And they're not going to go away. They're not bad. They're not something to feel guilty over. If you're like, oh, I'd really like that. That's not something that you feel guilty over that. Possession is fundamental. Possession is an extension of your kingdom, biblically and theologically. That's why it's so important. But we were made to possess, to reign under the reign of the goodness of God in obedience to him in a way that will bring God glory and enhance the lives of other people around us. We were made to create and to bless and delight in a spirit of generosity under our great God who has given so generously to us. That's what possession is about. That's what possession is about. But sin enters the picture, and all of a sudden sin makes us want to clutch and hold on to and shut God out and be greedy. And we start to say things like, well, I'm not the rich. That's, that's somebody else. I don't have to worry about generosity. It leads to another deception in our lives where we say, you know, I'm really all for generosity, and I'd be more generous if I had more money. If I had more money, well, I'd be more generous then. And there's all kinds of research on this. Christian Smith's book, as he walks through this, he shows how people who make less than $25,000 a year, on average, give 4.2% of their income away. Now, you think about that. So if someone makes uh, $100,000 a year, are they going to give 16% of their income away? No. They found that people who make $100,000 a year, on average, give 2.7% of their income away. They found in these studies that as people make more and more money, they clutch and they hold on to and they hoard more and more and more. It's crazy what money does to our hearts and in our lives. Now, it may not be true in every individual case, but on law of averages, that's how it kind of goes out. Something else he found 
is that when they talk to Christians, a majority of Christians in America say they believe that tithing, giving 10% of your income, is a biblical principle. Yes, we should be doing that. But they found that almost nobody does it because everybody says, well, I don't have enough money to actually be able to do that. You've got to understand this. You've got to understand, more money never makes anybody more generous. Only Jesus does that. Only Jesus does that. This is why Paul reminds us in Acts 20, verse 35, he says, Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that's not a morality call. That's a simple way that the world works. It leads you to more joy. It's not bad to receive. It's blessed to receive, but it's more blessed to give. There's an article that was done in Forbes magazine by Rich Carlgaard. He called it uh, the irrational act of tithing. And he's relating this to non-Christians. In Forbes magazine, he talks about the idea that people think when you give, you're not going to end up with less. But he writes about how people in the business world have decided they're going to start giving money away. Non-Christians have started tithing to different things. And what they found was that their life actually became enhanced. Because when you don't give, there's no adventure. But when you give, they found that their joy started to go up. And I think that's because God loves a cheerful giver. Givers seem to always be joyful because they're not hoarding and clutching and scared. People who are selfish clutch. Greedy people don't have a whole lot of joy because they're always holding on to things. And I find when I give money, I find that my trust level goes up in who God is because I'm not trusting my money. I actually also find when I give, my empathy level goes up and I want to know where it's going and what people are doing with it. You know, I give it to Element. You can ask us anytime where the money goes. We can tell you all day long where it all goes. I think when we give, our fear begins to go down. I think that's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money at the same time. I think part of that means that when you start letting go of money, money starts letting go of you. It doesn't have its hooks deep in you. I think you've got to get serious about what Jesus and Paul both say. That there's two ways that you go about learning to be generous. One of them is intentional. It is systematic. You build it into the system and structure of your life. You build it into the routine. And the other way you do it is when you just feel like doing it. Like if the mood strikes me, then I'll do it. How does that work out? Let me practically show how that works out. Say you take two guys. Both of them say they believe in exercise. Exercise is really important. We should exercise. One guy does it when he remembers, when the mood strikes him, when he feels like it. The other guy, he says, I'm going to put it on my calendar. It's going to be in my routine. And whether I feel like it or not, my calendar is going to go off, and I am going to go, and I am going to work out. Which guy's in better shape? Okay, three of you understand this. So three of you must be in shape. The rest of you guys are like, I don't know. How does that work? It's not rocket science, people. The guy who puts on his calendar and the guy who actually believes it and does it. Two guys go to a dentist. You know, and after the dentist meeting, one, one guy always schedules his next appointment right there and then when he walks out the door. The other one's like, I'll schedule it when I feel like it. How many people ever feel like going to the dentist? Right. Who's going to te- keep their teeth longer? The, for the guy who schedules it out. So you got two husbands, right? One husband, every time he comes home from work, he kisses his wife. The first thing he does when he walks in the door, whether he feels like it or not. The other husband waits for the mood to strike him. Which marriage has more kissing going on? <laughs> A pair of you guys need to know this. He's like, ah, I don't know. Which one? The guy who does it, whether he feels like it or not. And it may not sound romantic, but kissing leads to more kissing, which leads to more things. <laughs> Free advice right there. You're welcome. I'll tell you a funny story. It doesn't go with the message or anything, but it's really funny. Uh, this week I came home and my dog was all excited to see me. He's like, ah, and I'm all, Haiti. You know, and my wife's all, well, you love the dog. <laughs> it's kind of funny. 
She didn't say it in a mean way. She's just kind of pointing out that I'm a, I'm a dork sometimes. The, the point is that what matters to our hearts, we're going to build into our lives. We are simply going to do that. And that, that goes from spending time with Jesus every day. If it really matters to your heart, you're going to build it into your life. It, it means spending time and loving on your spouse, you're going to build it into your life. It means treasure and money. And if generosity is really important, you're going to build it into your life. You make a decision in your heart. What's God calling me to do? We don't put it in a sporadic sense. I wonder how much money is going to be left over. I wonder how, what I'm going to feel like at the time. We don't do that. We're intentional. We're intentional. We build it into the structure. This is why planting roots is this journey we walk through because hopefully by the end we get to a place where we actually build it into the structure of our lives. I mean, this is, it's meant to be a three-year journey in the end. It's not like, what are you going to do in October? It's like, what do you think God's going to do in your life over three years? You think God's going to bless you, do some amazing things? That's what we look forward to. Do you know people who set an annual giving goal, whether they reach it or not, actually end up giving twice as much as people who give based on what they can afford or what they feel like? You measure that out over a lifetime, and that's huge in terms of generosity. Just the power of setting a goal, because nobody gives by accident. It doesn't just happen. Paul says to Timothy, tell the rich people, that's us, be generous. And so you've got to ask, how's that going? I mean, don't answer me, right? <laughs> how's that going? Because it starts in a place that you've got to be really honest. Between you and God, spend some time really thinking about that. You know, how generous are you? Because a lot of people deal with finances and giving all these things and guilt by keeping it vague and foggy and distant. Don't do that. Don't live with the low-level chronic guilt. Pick up your bank statement. Look through it. Look at your online statement. If you're married, talk to your spouse about it. Because sometimes spouses don't even know. You know, that person does the bills, they give. Well, what are we giving? Well, I'm giving this. What? That's a lot of money. Or, you know, it's, you know, or it could be like, that's all. You know, talk about it. Say those words. How are we doing? What's the reality? Paul says, decide in your heart what you're going to do. And then you build your financial patterns of your life around your giving. My, my wife, not to toot our own horn, but my wife and I do this. Uh, and it's taken a long time to get there. It's not like we got married and like, yeah, that's how we're going to do it. It's, it took a long time to get there. But the first of every month, the first thing we do is we give. The first thing we do. And if you're going through the month and there's not enough money to go out to eat at some point, then you don't go out to eat. Because for us, generosity and giving has become very important to our lives. Because I'll tell you this. When you die, your net worth is going to change. I don't know if you know that. Okay? I'm being honest. A lot of investment people never say those things. So I'll give you some free advice. Manage your money in light of that day. And the day that comes right after that. Because I'll tell you, in eternity, eternity with Jesus is centered around, obviously, him and his glory. But it's centered also around generosity and sharing and love. Clutching, hoarding, grasping, there is no life in it. There is no life in it. Paul says all the riches of God are ours in Christ Jesus. The early church was made up of some very, very poor people, and they stunned the world with their generosity. And sometimes I wonder, because, you know, we're people probably don't have a lot of money either. And yet I wonder if we could stun the world again with generosity. And in the end of your journey, guys, I kind of put this question in there for you that, you know, a lot of people ask, well, should I trust God with my money? I think the better question is, why would God trust you with his money? I mean, that's the question. Because in the end, it's all God's. You know, are, are you being generous with what he's already given you? Are you in that place? And so in the journey guides, there's these action steps that I gave you. And I just want to hit those for you this morning. Uh, grab a journey guide if you don't have one and kind of go through these. These are the action steps. Be honest before God. Be honest before God. What are you thinking and feeling about it? Secondly, you be joyful in generosity. You know, you, if you do give, take joy in that. God, it's not like, you, God doesn't want you to be like, oh, here's my money, God. 
Ah. Sounds like Jim Gaffigan, doesn't it? Ah. It's a bad impersonation, but whatever. Okay. And then, and then after, confess your guilt. If you have little of a, just confess it. Talk about it. Say, God, I don't, I, I feel this thing. Talk to your spouse or not married. Talk to a friend or your gospel community about that. Uh, confess if you feel scared. I don't know what I can do. I'm really worried about this. And talk to somebody about that. Talk to Jesus about it. If you're mad that I just spent a whole message talking about money and you're getting three more weeks of this, I mean, if you're like, ah, I can't believe he's doing that, talk to Jesus about it. Don't talk to me about it. You know, talk, <laughs> talk to a friend about it. Talk to, talk to somebody about it. Don't just let that sit there. And in the end, we want you guys to be people who trust him with all that you are. All that you are. It's, it's not just about finances. It's about every part of our lives. But money seems to always vie for the place of Jesus in our hearts. It always seems to want to move him. And, and if it's there, oh, we're secure. I've got what I need. Instead of Jesus being in the place and knowing that he has given us everything that we need. I mean, the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. It is that our God has come and rescued us when we were lost. Jesus has come and died for our sins. That's what separated us from God and each other. And he rose to new life. So we have new life and our relationships can be restored with God and others. It's a beautiful thing, and it starts to understand that we have a generous God who provides his people with what they need. And so we trust him in that and live lives that show that we trust him in that. The band's going to come up. And as they do, uh, we invite you guys to take communion. Communion is the place where you break that cracker, reminds you of Christ's body, which was broken for you. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, it reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me so that we are a people who understand that our God is a giver and he has first given to us. And so we live understanding the givingness and the generosity of our great God. I mean, communion represents that so much so because he has redeemed and saved us. He has given to us. He is a gracious and generous and good God. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, I mean, maybe this whole idea of generosity freaks you out and you want to talk to somebody, you want to pray to somebody about it. Well, they'd love to pray with you about that. Um, if you would like to get involved in the gospel community, uh, sign up at the Welcome Center in the back. Uh, we invite you guys after service to hang out, grab something to eat, hang out with the CTV thing, maybe meet some other people if you don't know somebody, and go out to lunch, make some new friends, and maybe they'll start talking about these things. Hi, you're new. Let me tell you about my life. You know, awkward. You know, <laughs> but you can grow in friendship and begin to do that. I mean, part of having friendships and working together with other people is understanding we can have these deep conversations. We can have somebody hold us accountable and ask us how we're doing with these things. We can begin to actually do that. And so, you know, as part of our worship, we want to connect you guys together. There's also offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving then is simply part of that worship. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done. And it's a response of worship and gratitude and generosity. As we encourage you to go through the Planting Roots journey. Whether you decide to do anything or not, hopefully by the end of it, you'll understand how God has redeemed all of our life, all of our lives. And everything should be laid at his feet because we are a people who has been blessed beyond measure. And so we need to begin to live like it. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take us as a people and teach us what it means to truly live in the graciousness of who you are in the generousness that you have provided, understanding that we are a people who have run so far and so long away from you And yet you extend yourself to us to rescue and save us. I ask that as we understand that rescue, 
that all of our lives would be surrendered to you. That we would trust you in all things. And whatever that is sitting in the center of our heart that we give our devotion and worship and time to, whether it be a person like a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, whether it be a job, whether it be money, whether it be status, whatever it is, anything that sits in that place that we hold as center, it'd be replaced by you. That you would strip away all the things that so want to snare us and pull us away from your grace and goodness. And we would humbly be a people surrendered to your might and your majesty. We ask that you would deliver us from the madness half the time of the world that we live in to a place where we can come and be still and know that you are God. A place of honest hope. A place of understanding our great redemption. We thank you for being generous generous to us, to providing for us. And we ask that your spirit would lead us day by day to be generous as well. We ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.